Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. It says, Now when they had departed, these are the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now what we're going to do tonight is we're going to break down the three Old Testament prophecies that are referenced in this section. We've already kind of taken our time to break down. And when I was with you I get, last week, did a hypothesis of a possible timeline of all this that went on. But what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take three sections from here where Matthew quotes Old Testament prophecies and how Jesus fulfilled them in the episodes that we just read. All right, the first prophecy that Matthew refers to in these verses is from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. If you see in verses 13 through uh, 15, again, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is what he quoted. Out of Egypt I called my son. Go with me to Hosea chapter 11. So in Hosea 11.1 1 is where this prophecy is. And I think it will be very valuable for us tonight to take a look at the context of the passage. And there's going to be something we learn, hopefully, from this that will launch us into the next prophecy and the next. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you keep reading, which we're going to, you're going to notice, though, that the context is not referring to Jesus, but it's actually referring to the northern kingdom of Israel. Keep reading. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. And I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they refuse to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Now, if you put Hosea 11.1 with the rest of the context, it looks like he's talking about calling Israel, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt. But Matthew tells us that this was a fulfillment when he went down to Egypt with his mother and his father right after he's born because Herod tried to kill him. That it was a fulfillment when he left Egypt 
to go back out of Egypt have I called my son. The prophecy in Matthew says, or the Matthew says the prophecy in Hosea 11.1 1 is referring to Jesus and not to the nation of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Ah, there's something deeper here you might have missed. Go back and look at verses 1 and 2 especially and look at whether or not something is singular or plural. Look at verse 1 again. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Singular. Verse 2 and following all turned to become plural. They then this. They were called. The more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, and I took them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness. I think you get the idea. So what I want you to see, and what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a look at this. That all throughout the scripture, there are many references to Jesus that are somewhat hidden, but not via the Holy Spirit. And that's why God's given us what we call progressive revelation. That all along, the scriptures have been pointing to Jesus from the beginning. And I'm going to show you this in just a little bit. But if you remember when Jesus went through his his death and his burial and his resurrection and he walked with the two men on the road to Emmaus and they were all curious about all that had happened. We had thought he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. We thought he was the one the prophecies were talking about, but now he's been killed and our women say that he rose from the dead and some of our others have said they saw angels and some guys went and checked the tomb, but we're not sure. And if you remember, as Jesus walked with them on the way back to, uh, to Emmaus, he said, you're so slow a heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And he began and showed them all of the scriptures that were referring to him. So, yes, is he talking about Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel and their disobedience? Yes, he is. But prophecy, if you understand prophecy, jumps around a lot. In one verse, it could be talking about one thing. In the very next verse, it could be talking about something completely different. And that's why you have to, as the King James put it years ago, rightly divide the Word of God. And folks, you didn't understand. You say, Jim, I'm not so sure that that's right. Well, let me remind you. I'm not going to take you there now because we're going to go there a little later tonight. But in Isaiah chapter 61, when Jesus is referring to that passage, when he's in his hometown of Nazareth, in Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, open the eyes of the blind, and so on, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Yet when Jesus reads from that passage in his hometown of Nazareth, he stops right in the middle of a verse. He stops right where it says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he rolls up the scroll and he sits down and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let me ask you a question. Why didn't Jesus keep reading the rest of the verse? Because it says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't Jesus keep reading the rest of the verse? That's tied to his second coming. We understand this clearly, I hope. Well, do you realize what you just said? You just said that half of a verse of prophecy is referring to one time period, and the other half of the same verse of prophecy is referring to something completely different 2,000 years plus later. So do you have a problem with one verse pointing to one thing and another verse pointing to something else? You shouldn't, because that's what prophecy is about. That's why we need to understand how to study prophecy. A lot of people that try to study prophecy, try to read it chronologically. They try to make it all fit together. And you don't understand. God does it this way for a reason. I'm going to show you some more passages later on tonight that illustrate this. But what I want you to hear is this. He, Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 is referring to Jesus. It's singular. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Just going to give you a couple of passages through the Old Testament to show you that there are passages that clearly, obviously, are not talking about a big number, but only one. Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 15. God says to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, could that be referring to the people that are born to Mary? I mean, not Mary, but born to, uh, to Eve? Possibly. But then it gets singular again. Actually, offspring in that verse is singular anyway. He shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. It goes singular. So now if you're studying carefully and you're looking closely, you're going to realize he's not talking about the descendants of Eve. By the way, I fit into it. If he was talking about the descendants of Eve that have issues with snakes, I, got, I don't like snakes. But this passage isn't talking about me. This passage is talking about Jesus. When it goes very singular, it's clearly talking about one who is separate. Go to Genesis 22. It'll be even more clear. Genesis 22. Look at verses 15 through 18. This is the story where Abraham goes to sacrifice his son because God told him to. And as you know, God stops him and he provides for himself a sacrifice, the ram in the thicket. And he sacrifices the ram there. And, and at this point, Abraham's already renamed the hill on this hill. The Lord will provide. And look at verses 15 through 18 in Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second, Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, this is interesting here. We're going to take some time to break this passage down. And there are answers from the scriptures that will help us. But here he's told that. In, in verse 17, I'm going to surely bless you and I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. Now, even though it is singular here in this word, in this word offspring, it's referring to who? Close. No, it's referring to Isaac. Go with me to Genesis chapter 15. Go to Genesis chapter 15 and look at verses 1 through 6. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. He's tied to Isaac. This is the promise he'd already made him. I'm going to make your offspring, Isaac, as numerous. And yes, is it referring to his descendants? Definitely. But it's tied to Isaac because the promise back in chapter 15 when he said, I don't have an heir. I guess my servant's going to be my heir. And God says, no, a son from your own body. And this individual, I'm going to multiply more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. The second offspring in Genesis 22 is referring to the nation of Israel. He goes, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, in Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 7. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. By the way, that land was being possessed by other nations at that time. But he said to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. Go to chapter 13. Look at verses 14 through 17. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So if anyone can count the dust of the earth, then your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So again, here we see he's promised his descendants are going to be given this land. So back in Genesis 22, we see that he's told... Your offspring, Isaac, is going to actually become more numerous than the sand on the, on the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. And your offspring, your descendants, are going to possess the gate of their enemies. And in your offspring shall the, all, all the nations of the earth be blessed. Anybody want to take a wild guess to who this one's referring to? It's Jesus. It's in your offspring, singular again, Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? You remember back in Genesis chapter 12, go back there, look at verses 1, 2, and 3. This sounds familiar. 
Lord had said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. A hint toward this one again that was referred to back in Genesis chapter 3 and is many times referred to as the prophet or the son of David. We've done a lot of these studies. But you say, Jim, how do we know that's really referring to Jesus? Well, go to Acts. Sorry, not Acts. Galatians. We'll go to Acts in a second. Go to Galatians chapter 3. I have scriptural proof that Genesis 22 is referring to Jesus there in, Gen in Galatians chapter 3 verses 15 through 18. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, Paul then says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. But did I start in verse 19? Yes, thank you very much. That's my old eyes. I'm thinking, this is great stuff, but this isn't what I had in my notes. Go to verse 15. Thank you very much. To give a human example, thank you. Give a human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say in two offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Look at what it says. To your offspring, not offsprings. And it's referring to one. And that is quoting from Genesis 22. And it's referring to Jesus. Go to Acts 3 and we hear uh, a sermon here preached by Preter. Preached by Peter in Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 26. And again, he references that same place. Acts chapter 3, verse 17. It says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So what I want you to understand is, and this is where we're going to launch from, in Matthew we saw that just Jesus being taken into Egypt for that brief period of time to hide from Herod and then come out of Egypt was just to fulfill the prophecy. Yes, it was to protect him from Herod, but it was also to fulfill the prophecy in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. As we went back to Hosea and looked at it, we saw that the context mostly was talking about the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and their disobedience and God's future plan to reward them. Because how can I get rid of Ephraim? My heart goes out for them. Yet at the same time, in the midst of talking about the northern kingdom's sin and his future restoration, of them, he makes a prophecy that this one is going to come kind of out of Egypt. His son, I've called my son out of Egypt. Now, what I want you to see as we move into our next prophecy is that actually the scripture shows us that from Genesis to Revelation and from Revelation back to Genesis, as you look at the scriptures, it all points to Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. Because God's purpose is that in eternity, everything will be centered around Jesus Christ. Now, that's important because we need to know that now. 
Because we're about to get to a prophecy that was fulfilled that we looked at already today in, in Matthew that a lot of us have a bellyache with. And you have to understand that God has a purpose to center everything around Jesus Christ. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. By the way, this sounds like it's about us right now, doesn't it? We've been blessed and all this stuff and we've been given this because we're in Christ and it sounds like it's about us. Well, it's about to change. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. What's God's eternal purpose with Jesus? Is it just to save us? No. His eternal purpose is to have everything centered around Jesus Christ. In eternity, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Oh, even the knees that are in hell are going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. We have been given wonderful spiritual blessings being in Christ. We've been given wonderful gifts to be in Him. But you've got to keep in mind that the purpose of His will has at all times been to center everything in Jesus. It's not a plan he came up with later on. That's why all the way through Scripture, you will see little pictures and hints of things that point to Jesus. And when we get to the book of Revelation, what's everybody doing at the end? Praising Jesus, worshiping Jesus, focusing on Jesus. The problem is, we in the church have started to think that this life is about us. And I want you to see that scripturally, that's not what the Bible teaches. Go to Ephesians chapter 3 real quick and look at verses 10 and following. Ephesians 3, look at verses 10 and following. It says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so... We've already seen what his eternal purpose is. What? What was his eternal purpose according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and following? To center what? Everything. Things in heaven, things on the earth, around Jesus Christ. He has a purpose for the church. And his purpose for the church, tied to his eternal purpose, which is to center everything around Jesus, is to display his glory, his manifold wisdom, his eternal nature, to who? The spiritual authorities where? In the heavenly places. Doesn't the Bible say the angels long to look into the relationship that we've been given? Folks, let me just tell you, right now the church is a part of God's eternal purpose to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Yet we sit around whining about life and how bad things are and where's God and how can a loving God. And we think it's about us. Never was about us. It's always been about him. And all through the scriptures, even though we've been saved and we've been given these wonderful blessings, doesn't the scripture say we have been given this salvation to his glory, for his praise? And the focus should be Jesus and not us. Now that's going to help us. Go back to Matthew chapter 2. Look at verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then, what was, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. 
A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, as you know, because of the fact that God sent the angel to warn Joseph and Mary and to take the child and run to Egypt, because Herod's going to kill him, he didn't warn the other families, did he? And what happened while he was in Egypt? Herod had all his soldiers, soldiers go kill all the babies two years old and under in that whole area. Not just Bethlehem, but in that region. And if we're honest with ourselves, we look at that and we say, I don't like it. How could God? Why would God? Those were innocent children. I don't understand it. Well, I'm just going to say something real quickly to you. Be careful when you go down that road. Because the moment you start going down that road, you start climbing a ladder. That ladder puts you on a higher stool than God, where you become God's judge. Where you're actually saying, if I were God, I wouldn't have done that. Where was God? How could God? How could a loving God? When those thoughts and words come out of our mouth, we're actually setting ourselves above God as his judge saying, if I were God, I wouldn't do it that way. By the way, you do realize that was the first sin? When Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, you can be like God, deciding right and wrong, good and evil. Folks, all of us still have that curse in our flesh. And we have to be willing daily to lay our flesh on the altar and say, God, I don't understand everything you do. But this much I do know, your word says you are holy and just and perfect and pure and right. And you do no sin. You do nothing wrong. You make no mistakes. Therefore, you must have a reason that I don't understand and may never fully grasp on this side of life. But you know what? I'm willing to surrender to the fact that you're a God who is good. And I, even though I don't understand, I won't trust you. Oh, by the way, that kind of a response makes the angels curious and makes them praise God. Because there's a group of angels you probably know who made that same choice where they went with Satan in his rebellion when he wanted to be God. And he didn't redeem them. But he's redeemed us. And by the way, if any of you can say, I don't understand who, how God works. I don't understand his eternal purposes. But even though he slay me, yet will I trust him? If you are able to say like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our God's able to rescue us from this fire. But whether he will or not, we don't know. And it doesn't make a difference. Either way, we're not going to bow down. If you are able to have that kind of response, you didn't do it. That's a response that only God can do in your heart. That didn't come from you. It didn't come from me. So let's go now then to the passage that was quoted from here and see if we can't get a little more information, though, that might help us. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31 and look at verses 10 through 22. I think the context around this prophecy, again, will show you that the prophecy that they're quoting from seems to jump out of nowhere. Yet there's something in here, I think, that will be helpful for us, especially if you remember part of the prophecy we read in Hosea chapter 11, verses 2 through following. In Jeremiah 31, look at verses 10 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. 
There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Keep that in mind. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord, my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. In this prophecy, God's speaking through Jeremiah and he says to the nations, pay attention. Yes, I have done these things to Israel and rightly so. But I'm going to turn their mourning into joy. I'm going to comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Go real quick. Keep your bookmark here in Jeremiah. Jump back to Isaiah 61. Look at verses 1 and following. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes." The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, I could go on, but you get the idea. Has anybody noticed yet that throughout all of these prophecies about the future restoration of Israel, it's tied to them coming back from their punishment, back from their sorrow and mourning? Does anybody remember why? Herod is in charge at this time? See, we think about all these babies that were killed and how could a loving God allow all these babies? But let me ask you a question. Why was Herod even in charge? Not only because God put them there. Why did God put them there? Because they had walked away from him. Folks, we had forgotten the fact that they're still under the discipline of the Lord at that time when all these babies were killed. Remember when they studied, we studied Ezekiel? And because of their blatant disrespect of God and His Word, He said, I'm going to do this to you, and I'm going to do this to you, and you're going to eat your children, and you're, you're not going to be able to have any bread, and there's going to be no water, and, and I'm going to take you into captivity. And remember, we read that, and we're like, God's being just. God's being just. Well, they're still under the discipline of the Lord. Yeah, he let them come out of Babylon and back into the land. But if you remember from our study, very few even did. A lot of them just stayed in Babylon and said, hey, we kind of like it here. There was a small percentage that came back. And even then, they didn't really fully worship the Lord. And from that point on, there were no kings over them anymore. They always had governors from other nations. Well, how come? Well, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. God had told them all the way back. When they began, began as a nation, what would happen if they obeyed him? And what would happen if they didn't? Deuteronomy chapter 30, look at verses 15 through 20. God says to them, right as they're about to go into the promised land, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over in the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live Loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Go to Deuteronomy 28. Look at verses 1 through 14. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey, obey the voice of your Lord, the Lord your God. Blessed you shall be in the city. Blessed you shall be in the field. Blessed will be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. 
Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord's going to cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways and all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. In the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your livestock, and the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you, the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. By the way, God's been promising all these blessings and you get to stay in the land. You'll be in charge. You'll be the head and not the tail. What's the opposite if they don't obey? They're cursed. They actually are the tail. We keep forgetting. Yeah, Herod killed all these babies. Well, how come Herod was in charge? Because of their disobedience. Good Deuteronomy 31. Look at verses 16 through 22. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them. By the way, he gave them the ifs. He already knew what they're going to do. To whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they're entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I'll forsake them and hide my face from them, and they'll be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. And now go down to chapter 32. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. But if you were to go to Psalm, uh, Deuteronomy 32, you'll realize it's a song that God gave Moses to sing to the people. And I actually think it's pretty cool because have you ever noticed you can remember something in a song a whole lot easier? Have you ever noticed that you got a song, you got the lyrics and everything if you got it in a song form. And God gave the nation of Israel their whole history from beginning to end in a song. If you've never read Deuteronomy 32, go sit down sometime and read it slowly and write down the things that God said. I'm just going to read to you verses 1 through 4 to start. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and on the showers of the herb. For I'll proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Now, if you see the next verse, what happens? But they dealt corruptly with Him. We see in chapter 32, verse 21, the promise of the church age. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They provoke me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I'll provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Don't you remember how in Romans chapter 11, the Bible says through Paul that God's saving the Gentiles right now, doing this church thing to make Israel jealous? But jump down to verse 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there's none remaining, bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate of the fat of their sacrifices and drank of the wine that, that, of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand for I lift up my hand to heaven and, and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh and the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children, and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. By the way, what's he, when's that going to happen? 
at the end of the tribulation period in the battle of Armageddon, all these things are going to happen. Folks, all throughout the scriptures, God has said to the nation of Israel, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If not, there's going to be consequences. But you know what? As much as I have every right to wipe you off the face of the earth, I can't. I can't. As you saw in Hosea chapter 11 and Jeremiah 31, my heart still goes out for Israel. I love them. And because of that and because of my promises to their fathers, I'm not going to wipe them out forever. I'm going to provide salvation for them. And I'm in the end going to bring them back into their land. Did you ever catch in the promise there in Jeremiah that after it says, wait, Rachel's weeping for her children, for there are no more. It says that her children are going to be able to go into the land. I hope you understand something about the heart of God when it comes to babies. I think the Bible teaches without question that when babies die, they're going to be in heaven by His grace. Yes, sir. Can you tie that scripture to Samuel 12? What yeah. is talking about? Without question. He says, I know that I can't go to him. Sorry, that he can't come to me, but I'm going to go to him. David, David had a peace that he'd see that child again, and David knew he's going to be in heaven. All the way through scripture, the Bible teaches that. Don't bring the children. I care about children. The Bible teaches, doesn't tell us what age there is, but there seems to be an, a, a point that we call the age of accountability in which once you understand your lostness, now you're accountable for it. And that happens for all of us at different ages. But I think the prophecy even said, yes, those children did die, but they're going to be able to come back into the land during the millennial kingdom. Your children are going to come back to the land. God is gracious, folks. We don't have to fully understand it. But you got to keep in mind, the reason that this stuff happened, why Herod was able to kill all those babies, is because God did everything he said he would do because of Israel's disobedience. But did anybody notice what was happening at the same time that the babies were being killed? Did anybody catch it? We get so focused on, how could a loving God allow all those babies to die? Do you all know what was going on at the same time? The one that had been promised from Genesis the one who was slain before the foundation of the world, the one who was planned to die on our behalf because of our sin, the one that God had provided to reconcile us to him, who is going to be the one to rule and reign for eternity in the land of Israel, was being born. In the midst of the judgment comes promise. In the midst of the suffering and the discipline, I'm going to turn your mourning into joy. I'm going to give you beauty for ashes. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this is actually an interesting prophecy to study. Because it's caused a lot of confusion, but it really isn't that hard to understand if you look closely at what it's saying. First off, the prophets, plural, had said that Jesus would be a Nazarene. But if you search the scriptures, you will see that nowhere does the scripture say the Messiah would come from Nazareth. There's not a prophecy anywhere that says that he'll come from Nazareth. But Matthew doesn't say that he would be from Nazareth, does he? What does Matthew say? That he would be called a Nazarene. To be called a Nazarene or to be associated with the city of Nazareth in Galilee was an insult. Actually, Jeffelte, we grew up in a little town called Milton, New Hampshire, and right next to us was Farmington. We called Farmington the armpit of New Hampshire. It was, it was the rival school, and just, if you were from Farmington, you were despised. Well, Nazareth was the, was, well, Nazareth was the Farmington, if you will, of Israel. Mims, there. <laughs> Actually, um, there's a, a little town in, in, in Georgia called Adel, and I had a, a guy that lived next door to me in, in a dorm, and I said, uh, What's Adel like? And he goes, It's so close to hell you can see sparks. There's a town right next door called Sparks, but that's what he said. It's, Adel was so close to hell you can see sparks. 
Go to John chapter 1 and you will notice that actually to be from Nazareth was to be despised. Look at John chapter 1 verses 43 through 46. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Do you see what his reaction was when he heard he's from Nazareth? Nazareth? Adele? Mims? Farmington? There's just nothing good's going to come out of there. Go to John chapter 7. Look at verses 40 through 52. On the last, sorry, go to verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered him, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? They insulted him. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. By the way, you want to know how much they didn't know their Bibles? There was a prophet in the Bible from Galilee. His name was Jonah. But the Bible never did say that the prophet, the promised one, the Christ would come from Galilee. The Bible just said, the prophet said that he would be a Nazarene. He would be despised. Go with me to Isaiah 63. Sorry, 53. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah 53. Who's believed what the Lord, what has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, here it is again, grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed and all we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, when the Spirit of God was drawn the Ethiopian eunuch, he was in this passage, and the eunuch asked Philip, who's Isaiah talking about here? Is he talking about himself or somebody else? He knew this is referring to an individual here. And that's when Philip had the privilege of showing him who the he and the him was. Now, go with me to Psalm 22. Remember, the prophets, plural, had said that he would be despised, a Nazarene. Go to Psalm 22. Look at verses 6 through 18. By the way, Psalm 22 is another one of those wonderful prophecy passages where one verse is talking about one thing and the next verses are talking about something completely different. But it's so full of prophecy. Tell me this doesn't sound familiar in Psalm 22. Look at verses 6 through 18. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. By the way, that's word for word what the Pharisees were saying when they stood at the cross. Yet you are the, he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death." 
For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I think we know who that is, right? But do you realize it said in verses 6 and 7 that he was mocked and scorned? All along the prophets had said that this Messiah, this one that God was going to bring, the one that God was going to provide for their sins to be the Savior of Israel, the world. Because remember, in him all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That this one was going to be mocked. Go to Mark chapter 9. Look at verses 9 through 12. Jesus just had his transfiguration experience. And verse 9 says, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes uh, that say that first the Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Even Jesus told him, look, they're going to reject me. If you even know anything about Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, three times he talks about how they're going to mock him. They're going to kill him. Three days later, he's going to rise. So the prophets did say that he would be a Nazarene, that he'd be despised. Rejected by the people. You know, the Bible says that for many, Jesus is a rock of offense. Many are offended by Jesus because he doesn't do things like they think he should. We've even flirted a little bit tonight with the fact that sometimes we struggle with how he does things. And we have to be real careful that we set our minds on the truth of the scripture, on the fact that he is holy, he's perfect, he's just, he's almighty, and everything he does is right. And that means, even though we don't understand, he has a reason and a purpose, and it's good. And you don't have to understand. Too many of us have quoted Romans 8, 28 and say, he's going to cause all things to work for good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. And we go looking for the good right away in this life. And if you look at the context of Romans 8, the whole context is to come. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that our present suffering are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. Creation's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit long to be, receive our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The context is there when we get to heaven. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The context in Romans 8 is you may not see his good purposes here. But we always go looking for the good here when suffering and trouble comes. And sometimes we may see it. Most of the time you may not. And is he still God to you? Or are you going to be offended and be God yourself? Let me show you real quick in the time we have left how Jesus offends some people. By the way, in Matthew eleven six, 6, we'll get there when we get to that part, that chapter. Jesus says these words, blessed is he who is not offended by me. Blessed is he who is not offended by how I run my world. Go to Matthew 13. Look at verses 50 through, 53 through 58. Some people are offended by Jesus because they think he's just a man and he has no right to make the claims that he made. Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And we're not all his, are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Some people are offended by Jesus because he has the nerve to claim to be God. They think he's just a man. Others are offended by Jesus because he doesn't line up with their self-made religious traditions. Jump over to chapter 15. Look at verses 7 and following. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and he said to them, Hear and understand. 
It's not what goes in the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you, not, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. There are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. There are going to be some people who are offended by Jesus because he doesn't follow their religious traditions. Folks, by the way, God taught me something this last two weeks. As I was out there traveling and teaching in these churches, you know, there are people in churches that try to run the show. And God spoke to my heart as I was dealing with such an issue on this trip. And everybody, including myself, was focusing on those people who were trying to call the shots and run the show. And they weren't following God. And we wanted to, we kept saying, yeah, but this person keeps stopping it. And yeah, we want to follow God, but this person's doing this. And God spoke so clearly to me. He said this. He said, take your eyes off of that person and put them back on me. Look at what Jesus said. He had blind leaders of the blind. He had Pharisees, religious leaders who were intentionally leading people astray. And he said, let them go. God spoke to my heart. He said, if you spend your time preaching about these people, you're putting your eyes on them instead of on me. You take your eyes off of them and you put them back on me. I can deal with people that are trying to mess up my plans. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When you start paying attention to these people who are trying to run the show, you're giving glory to them and taking glory from me. I will accomplish all my stuff. You leave them alone and you follow me. Some people are offended because they don't understand everything he says. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 62. Jesus had just said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. When many of his disciples, John chapter 6, verse 60, heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Let me ask you a question. How many of you understand everything Jesus does and everything he says? Let me put my hand down, too. Don't be offended by him. You don't have to understand everything. You just have to trust him. And he gets glory. But for those of us who are willing to lay aside our need to fully understand everything and are willing to lay aside our religious traditions and by faith accept that Jesus is no mere man but God himself, the Bible says that God promises to reward us for eternity with Jesus. You do know that, right? He's centered everything, has always centered everything. In eternity, it will be revealed that everything is centered around Jesus. That means it's not about you and me right now. It's about him. And one day, if we're willing to have it be about him, when he is rewarding Jesus and glorifying Jesus, the Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ. And we are going to be in some way ruling over the angels alongside of Jesus. It's babbling, isn't it? It's mind-boggling. But listen closely to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 18 as we close. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 18. We love to quote the fact that we're co-heirs with Jesus. Oh, there's a caveat on that verse that you don't like to quote. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 18. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, see it there, capital S, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The ones who are going to be glorified with Jesus and are going to be able to rule and reign with Jesus, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if we suffer with Him, we'll reign with Him are the ones who are willing to lay their flesh down in this life and let him be God, even though we don't understand, even though we don't like it, and believe that he has a purpose and a plan and everything he does is right. 
And even when God does things that make us question him, we quickly lay our flesh down and say, no, no, no. I'm going to live with my mind set on things above. I know this much. He is good. And he's awesome. And he's proven it through his son. And just because I don't understand doesn't mean that any of that has changed. The Bible says when we're willing to suffer in this life and let him be God, one day he'll reward us for eternity. And I think Paul closed by saying that next verse that I didn't read. I consider that our present suffering is not worth even comparing with the glory to be revealed. How did Paul know? He'd already gotten to see heaven, but he wasn't allowed to talk about it. Folks, I love you. Isn't it kind of cool how just in that section of that story, there were three Old Testament prophecies that took us in a deeper walk with Jesus? That's the whole point of Matthew. I hope by the time we come back together, you're ready to get deeper in your walk with Jesus. Till then, we'll see you in two weeks.